Hello and welcome to this week's episode of A Mic on the Podium with me, Michael Seal. Before we start, I'd like to thank my latest subscriber on Patreon, Tim, for his support and all my other Patreon supporters. If you'd like to support the podcast, go to patreon.com forward slash a mic on the podium and you'll find many ways to subscribe, plus extra bonus material and episodes to enjoy. You can also support the podcast by visiting Just Giving and again typing in a mic on the podium. Please can I also urge you to leave a review or rating on Apple Podcasts, which will be greatly appreciated by me and will help the podcast reach a bigger audience. Today, I will be conducting a conversation with a British conductor who has had a long and distinguished career. Since 1989, through until the present day, he has held a position with the BBC Concert Orchestra and been conducting the Royal Ballet for almost as long. It's a real pleasure to chat with Barry Wordsworth. Barry, how nice to talk to you today. Mike, it's very good to talk to you, and especially at this time when we have... uh perhaps time on our hands and time enough to communicate with everybody our passion for music exactly which is sort of how this podcast came about because i thought you know when in the future am i ever going to be able to speak to conductors about conducting for about an hour and pin them down so yeah it's a it's a bonus of the time that we're in it's a great idea thank you whilst we're talking about the current time we're in and before we go back to you know the start and when music first came into your life are you were are you learning scores at the moment or are you like me finding it difficult to concentrate on things like that oh dear i have a confession already and um i was listening to the radio the other day and I, there was a piece of music on and i thought i really ought to know this piece what is that i could not think what it was and so of course at the end it, and i was told it was the sixth symphony of schubert mm. and i was i was a bit upset that i didn't know that um, and I then went upstairs and looked at my library and I discovered I had every score of Schubert's symphonies except the number six. So I sent off, ordered it, and it's arrived and I haven't started work. That was about a week ago and I still haven't started work. I find it so difficult without the actual pressure of a, of a performance coming up, you know? Yeah, absolutely. I agree. Uh, I'm exactly the same. I've got one score sitting on my desk and I'm, the performance is likely to be in February uh, if we get back by then. And... All the rest are just sitting on the shelves and, yeah, I'm finding... Somebody called it sort of Schrodinger's career at the moment. You know, do you learn, <laughs> yes. a, score, do you learn a score or not learn a score because the concert may or may not happen? The only thing I am doing to, to uh, kind of use up my time and keep my brain um, working is I, I've decided to write a piece of um, counterpoint every day, every single day. I write a two-part invention um, and I start after breakfast and it has to be done by lunchtime. <laughs> oh, brilliant! Um, well, it's it's amazing. It's great fun, actually. They're not very good. I don't I don't think I'm going to um, try and get them published. But it's um, it's quite amusing. <laughs> well, it's good. For, it's good for the brain. Um, yeah. I, yeah. I think I think if I wasn't doing this, I might have gone back to my student days when I was a joint first study violinist and composer, and I might have started writing things. Well, I mean, I had started writing again before this all hit. Um, but it's sort of gone by the wayside because I'm every waking minute sort of dealing with podcast stuff. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, Mike, you never know. Perhaps this is the time to get started again. Maybe. Um, can I go right back to the beginning, Barry, and find out when music first entered your life and how? Oh, well, it's, um, it's a little bit of a story. Uh, I remember being transferred to a church school when I was seven years old. Not because my family was particularly religious, but that was just the local school. Mm. And um, I, my parents and I were called in to see the headmaster. And then I think I'd been in the school about six months. And, and the situation was that he was told them in front of me <laughs> um, that, that all the teachers were, didn't know what to do with me. I was a dreamer. I sat in the class. And nobody could get my attention. And do you know, Mike, I really remember that time sitting there thinking, I don't know what this is all about. This all life seems so sort of senseless and mm. ridiculous. And at the end of the meeting, he said to my mum, oh, well, does he sing? And she said, oh, yeah, he sings around the house all the time. Mm. And uh, he said, well, you know, uh, we need some new choir boys. Um, 
and being a church school, of course, he, he, he was a lay preacher, I think, himself, the headmaster. Uh, tell him to come along to choir practice next Tuesday. <laughs> and, Mike, I can tell you, I, I, I went in as a probationer, of course, not really knowing what I was doing. I was handed a piece of music, and it was, it was a revelation to me. I can remember thinking, ah, thank God, this is what life is all, this is, you know, this is what makes sense of life. Yes. I mean, suddenly. And, and was singing for a long time your preoccupation, your, uh, your only method of music making? Well, yes, it, but it led on very, very quickly to my wanting to have piano lessons. We didn't have a piano at home, but my aunt lived around the corner and she had a piano. Mm. And so the idea was that I would start having lessons and go and practice with her, yeah. her place rather, and, and, and that worked terribly well. And then after six months, my dad said, well, you're quite serious about this. I'm going to buy you your own piano. Great. And so things started to take off, you see. Uh, and through, I'm guessing through secondary school, piano and singing stayed with you. Um, how did it manifest itself at the end of school? Well, I mean, it, it was already wonderful at school because they had this scheme going, which they still do, I think, that... Um, if you showed talent at school, you could uh, get a scholarship to go and study on Saturdays at one of the London colleges. Mm. And so I was so lucky to get into Trinity because the lady who ran the junior exhibition, um, Gladys Puttick at Trinity College, was, was a fantastic teacher. And I, was, I got into that. Um, and the other thing which happened amazingly was that when I was in my very early teens, we lived opposite the uh, the local swimming pool, and in the winter, it used to shut down and become a concert hall. Oh, great! Yeah, I remember the swimming pools did that. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and um, one evening, my dad said, "Oh, I've got tickets. Um, let's go to the concert." And it happened <clears throat> to be Sir Adrian conducting the LPO, and it was Enigma Variations, and it was again one of those moments that you know I'll never forget. Mm. And the next day, quite by chance, the first lesson next day was a music lesson. Uh, and the music master called over to me at the end of the thing and he said, what's the matter with you? You're dreaming all the time. Can't get any, any it's the same thing. Can't get anything out of you. Yeah. <laughs> and, I, and I told him um, that I'd been to this concert and he listened and he said, uh, it was, it, my music master was a chap called Charles Cleal, who used to be chorus master for... Um, Benjamin Britten, actually, in Alborough. Oh, wow. A very brilliant man. And he... Wordsworth, because it was all surnames in those days. Mm. I know Sir Adrian quite well. I will write to him. And I said, you can't do that. <laughs> anyway, he did. Mm. And about two weeks later, I got a letter from Gwen Beckett, who was Sir Adrian's secretary for years and years and years, saying, I've just received a message from your schoolmaster. Um, when you next get a half term or a holiday, please make an appointment to come and see Sir Adrian. So I did. Mm. And um, we went on meeting all through the rest of my school days until I got a scholarship to the Royal College where he was um, conducting teacher. And um, that was really what took me forward from there. So Barry, Saturday mornings at the Trinity, which is, what's that, two or three hours on a Saturday morning, and then you go to the Royal College and then you're there full time. How did you find that transition between the, the two establishments and also the, going to music full time? And when you were at the Royal College of Music, what were you studying? Was it keyboard or were you actually conducting there as well? Yes, well, I, I mean, I think that I mentioned uh, Gladys Puttick, who, who ran the junior department of Trinity College. Uh, she was a terrific influence, um, and I mean, I, I can, little story if I may. Mm. Um, I, I remember at my audition that for Trinity College, she she was taking it actually, and uh, I I had played the Mozart B flat piano sonata uh, for her as my set piece, and um, I don't think it was a particularly wonderful performance actually. And at the end of it, she turned to me and said, "Do you improvise?" Mm. Well, now, I'd been told, you know, that improvising was, was the device of the devil and something that I shouldn't do. <laughs> and um, 
uh, but I had that thought in my brain and also at the same time thinking that um, I'd always been told to tell the truth. Mm. So I said, well, actually, yes, I do. Oh, she said, how, how wonderful is that? And she was sitting at another piano in the room and she said, I'm going to start off in G major and I'm going to do something that will take me to D major and I'd like you to do a piece of equal length to take me from D major back to G major again. Mm. Well, of course, I thought this was terrific fun. <laughs> Um, and it changed the whole, my whole feeling about the, the uh, audition and so on. And uh, I, I honestly think that's, that's what got me into Trinity College, mm. those, those, that, that messing around. But it, it was something that she, she used to have weekly musicianship classes. And um, improvising at the piano was, 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 was all part of it and everybody was encouraged to do it. And uh, it, was, it was really great fun. Um, I got such a lot out of being there. But I felt that I wanted to go to the college because I had this um, great uh, sort of devotion almost to, to Sir Adrian and his mm. way of conducting. And he taught at the college, so I, I, I moved on to there. And I went actually as a pianist. After the first year, I was able to do conducting uh, alongside. Sir Adrian, what was his sort of teaching style? Was he very much... Uh, score-based learning scores. I mean, he had a very um, singular technique that you know many people have copied since, or had a similar sort of technique since, with this long baton and everything coming from the fingers and wrist. Did he teach you that, yeah. or was he much more sort of based on score learning, or, or, the, or the whole thing? Well, it was a very general approach. Hmm. I mean, he he did um, encourage that sort of use of the stick. I must say, we had several sessions talking about that sort of thing. But I think probably the most important thing he said to me was at the end of my time with him at the Royal College, I can, I can remember it. He said, well, Barry, you seem to have cottoned on to most everything I wanted to tell you. Now, my biggest uh, suggestion is that you go away and forget it all. <laughs> and do you know, it was about 10 years later that I realized what he meant because I ended up being like a rather poor carbon copy. Mm -hmm. That was my, you know, um, uh, and I, I think he said the same thing to Sir Andrew Davis actually too. Mm. Although Sir Andrew uh, has never used a, a, a big stick like that, I don't think. But um, no, he, he, was, he was a wonderful influence, but it was terribly, because it, it, it's such a, a definitive sort of style, isn't it? Mm, it is, yeah, it's, very it, much. It, it's so it's so easy to, to look like it, um, and of course that's that's not really. It, it, you, you've got to still present your own personality. Mm. Would you call it an old-fashioned style? Just talking about it in particular, because it's very it's almost along the lines of Richard Strauss. You know, a conductor should never perspire. He, you know, he he didn't seem to move his arms very much. But when he did, of course, the sound just exploded. When he did a bigger gesture, things were amazing. But everything was very controlled, and and, uh, and it was all at the point of the stick. Would you call it old-fashioned, or, or was it just you know a style all of his own that that worked? Well, he he did um, train in Germany, of course, mm. and I think I think a lot of his his approach came from Nickish. Yeah. And so I suppose in that way, it, it, you could look at it as being rather um, old fashioned. But I think that, I mean, yes, and I remember him saying to me, yes, don't, don't only raise your arms above your shoulders once a concert. There <laughs> <laughs> um, are all sorts of funny little things like that he would yeah. say. But, but I, I think the, the great thing that it taught me was to relax. Yes. I mean, he was a great um, advocate. Of, of the total sort of relaxation. In fact, he, he, he studied Alexandra technique, I think. Oh, did he? Oh, wow. Yeah, yes, he did. Um, and so that was, that was a big influence on me as, as well. Mm. And then on, I read, to um, a brush with Bernard Heitink. How did that come about that you come to uh, study and be around Bernard Heitink? Well, after my time at the college, I was lucky enough to get a scholarship to go abroad and study. And I, I sort of chose to go to Amsterdam because there were two of my biggest heroes. By this, by this point in time, I decided that harpsichord was going to be my main instrument. Mm. 
And of course, Gustav Leonhardt lived in Amsterdam and, and was a great teacher. Yeah. And at the same time, Bernard was running the Concertgebouw. And so it was a wonderful place to be. And I was, I was there for almost a year. But unfortunately, during the time that I was there, Bernard was, was struck down with a, with a really bad bout of pneumonia. Oh. Um, but he, he got me the entree into the Concertgebouw. And so every week that he took off to, to get better, um, he was replaced by, I suppose, a, probably about 12 of, of the, the world's finest conductors at that time. And just observing how the orchestra changed, how they reacted to the different conductors, mm. one after the other, um, was, was actually, a, again, a great inspiration to me. It taught me a lot. Wow. I mean, that's, I've said in previous episodes, and I'm sure i say again, that, you know, watching rehearsals of great conductors and great orchestras is one of the ways that conductors really learn. I mean, obviously the others is piano classes and, and actually conducting, but watching some of these greats rehearse, do you, did you find that, you know, so many new things were coming to you every week from all of these greats? Yes, I think to see that much variety in a, in a short space of time yeah. really was important because it it made it broadened my uh, horizons. Let's put it that way. Yeah. <laughs> so study, <laughs> studies have stopped, um, or at, le at least it sounds like it, and you're out into the big wide world. And the next time I see anything of major note, it's principal conductor of the BBC Concert Orchestra in '89, but also the Royal Ballet. Um, let's start. Let's focus with with ballet. How did working in ballet come about? Oh, do you know it was a, it was a complete accident. <laughs> I can put it that way. No, you can't. You can. I'd come back from Amsterdam with absolutely nothing to do, mm. um, and I was sitting at home one day and. The phone rang and it was Covent Garden because they had to do a, a, a ballet to the Franck Martin harpsichord concerto. Oh wow! And George, George Malcolm, who was the soloist, had 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 to remove himself from it because I, th I think it was illness actually. All right. And they needed somebody at very short notice, and so they said, "Did I know the Franck Martin?" And I said, "Well, yes," which I'm afraid was a fit. Um, <laughs> We've all been there, Barry. <laughs> <laughs> But I had to, so I had to go out and learn it jolly quickly because they wanted to audition me, and I was lucky. I got I got the job, mm. and and it started me really on a new uh, on a new course of music making because I hadn't really been a much of a theatre person, you know. I'd grown up sort of as a church musician and a harpsichordist and so on, and and just going through the stage door for the rehearsal of the Franck Martin and being aware of all the different disciplines that have to come together mm. when you're working in the theater. I found this the biggest buzz ever. And I, uh, the ballet, thank goodness, it, well, it, it wasn't created at the time I did it, it, but it had already been in the repertoire. It was the Franck Martin Habsburg Concerto and it was based on a play by Lorca, mm. uh, the house of Bernardo Dalba. And it's a terrific ballet. I mean, it really works to, to be able to Kenneth's ability to condense that story into the 25 minutes of the Franck Martin. And you really would think that the piece had been written for it. Yeah. Um, it, it, it's, it's, it's magic. And it stayed in the repertoire uh, for a fair long time. I mean, I think I was in and out of there and on tour with it and so on for, a, for about a year. Mm. And finally, we had played it all over the place and, and we toured abroad as well with it. And uh, they said to me, well, that's it for Barry. It's not going to come back into the repertoire for some time. So bye-bye. Yes. But then a week later, I got a telephone call again saying, by the way, we now need a, a second conductor, an assistant conductor for the touring company, the Royal mm. Ballet. Um, and we've heard that you have done some conducting. Would you be interested? And I said, well, I don't know anything about ballet really it was I you know all those performances I'd been aware of the theatre situation but I was stuck in the pit I couldn't really see the stage and um <clears throat> well they said turn up and and go through um Malcolm Arnold ballet solitaire mm. next week in Brighton <laughs> and uh I did um and I actually had some friends in the orchestra that time and uh, 
I said to one of them, well, what do I do? And they said, well, just conduct it as you normally would do, only slower. <laughs> and again, the greatest bit of luck because everybody was very pleased with the way it went. And so I got the job of associate or assistant conductor, sorry, of the Royal Ballet Touring Company, or mm. as it then was, Sadlerswell's Royal Ballet, I think it was the title of the company then. Yeah. Um, and it, it started me off with an interest in, in, in ballet. So, um, yeah, again, a great piece of luck. Now, ballet is something I've sort of touched on in one previous podcast, but I know nothing about how long it takes as a conductor to put together a new ballet production um, and your involvement in it as a conductor. For instance, you know, I know, and maybe the listeners ought to know, that to, to do a concert on a Wednesday in the UK, we might have two five-hour rehearsal days uh, and then a dress rehearsal on the day and the concert. It's, you know, three days' mm. work. How long would it take to, say, do a, a, a new ballet? Uh, and when would you get involved? Because obviously the dancers are trying to learn their, their steps or their, their moves um, weeks before the first performance. But, so when do you get involved and how long does it take? Well, I suppose it depends um, whether you're doing a uh, single act ballet, which there are a lot in the repertoire now, mm. or whether it's, a, it's a, a whole evening, which tends to be rather more of a story type situation. Um, and choreographers, when they're doing a whole uh, three hour ballet, if, you, if I can put it that way, mm. may probably start working well over a year even wow. in advance. Mm. And of course, the conversations with the conductor um, and all the production team and so on will have started up um, at about the beginning of that time, if not even before. Mm. So it can be a very lengthy uh, gestation period. And I think that the, uh, the great thing is, is to dip in and out yes. of mm. rehearsals because they do go very slowly. Um, everything is, is taught by rote and people... Um, have uh, a lot of time to create the steps and the choreography uh, and you can never tell which days are going to be really interesting and which are going to be just you know not really worth going to mm. so but you get a feel of how things are going if you if you pop in once a week and uh, of course then as it gets nearer and nearer the first night <clears throat> so you spend more and more time with them mm. and you and then as you go in once a week and you, you're talking to at this stage, I would imagine the most important person there, which is the piano repetiteur, who is playing the, the score all the way through all of these classes and finding out, you know, tempi and finding out what they need and space between numbers and all of that. I would imagine the, your relationship with the repetiteur is a, a really important one, or repetiteurs, maybe, I don't know. Yes, it's absolutely crucial to the success of it. But then I suppose that's part of why I love working in a theatre, because it, it, it is in every respect a team effort, isn't it? Mm. Um, yeah. we, you have to have that feeling that music is one part, albeit a very important part, but just one part of the whole experience. And that's really what I learnt and, and love about working in the theatre. I'm going to zone in on one particular aspect of it, because I conducted one ballet concert once. Um, mm. which was uh, a gala concert in Jersey, and there were some principals from the Royal Ballet were flying over. Uh, as a by-the-by, they arrived late because Jersey was fog-bound and the plane couldn't arrive until just before the concert, so I was winging it in the concert. But the numbers in between were local ballet schools, and I'd been sent the recordings yes. that these the ballet schools had been uh, practising to, and in the rehearsal, one of the ballet school teachers shouted at me and said, Maestro, your tempo is so fast, it's wrong, it's completely wrong. Now, me being me, I'd done my homework and I'd checked the metronome mark and I'd turn around and said, so the metronome mark should be, and she read, told me, and I, it was exactly as I expected. So I got my phone out and I've got a little app and you can tap the screen and it gives you the metronome mark you were going at. And it turns out I was one beat too slow, yeah. one metronome mark too slow. But <laughs> the most important yeah. thing I learned that day was tempo is the big thing but also when I was following these principles was, you know, I went off, started off because we were doing it for the first time in the concert because of them being fog bound. I was watching their feet so much and thinking, well, actually that, that this tempo does seem faster than I'll slow down. I mean, is tempo mm. that, that important to them? Well, I think that you touch on some really very interesting things because, uh, you know, even now, mm. 
musicians and dancers tend not to talk very well to each other and the whole discussion seems always to be about too fast or too slow mm. in fact there was a there was a time um when i used to say i only have two tempi too fast and too slow <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. and frequently they will say that something is too fast and it, it's it's more to do with breath between phrases perhaps mm. um it may be to do with rubato that they're that they're wanting um, yes. depending on the, the style of the composer and so on but unfortunately as you described they fall back so often dancers fall back on saying it's too fast or too slow which gives us completely the wrong idea of what they mean mm. because often as you again quite rightly um say that the the difference on a metronome is 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 almost nothing mm. and you feel to yourself well if you can't do it at crotchet 66 and you want 64 and that's going to make all the difference in the world then i i don't really see the point of arguing about it because it's such a small difference yes but it's frequently not that it's frequently other things that they're after a softer approach a, a more um, rubato sort of feeling mm. more breath between the phrases yeah yeah that sort of thing yeah right it's it, it's definitely something that's fascinated me and after doing that concert i thought do you know what? I really want to go and do it all over again uh, another day and see whether at least the principles that I worked with it were different. You know, we're human beings. They're bound to feel different the next day, you know, feel fitter or feel maybe a little bit lethargic. And I think you've got to, you've got to tell me if I'm wrong, but I think you've got to treat them almost like you would a singer whose breath control one day is different to the next. Oh, that is so a good, good way of putting it, Mike. Yes, it's, it's absolutely like that. Um, and the, the real problem, I think, for anybody who does decide that they would be interested to, to work in ballet is that if, for example, if you're a student at college and you want to do some opera, you can go off to the opera school and uh, find out all about it and how to make it work. Um, unfortunately, in the ballet, until very recently, there hasn't been that cooperation Mm. <clears throat> between ballet companies and young musicians and so you 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 often find that young musicians who do get interested in it uh feel as if they're being thrown at the deep end running alongside your almost constant time either with the Sadler's Wells Royal Ballet or the Birmingham Royal Ballet you've been involved either as chief conductor or now um, chief conductor laureate or music director laureate with the BBC Concert Orchestra uh, a completely yeah. different organization but a, uh, equally as wonderful I've worked there many times and love that orchestra what are the challenges and loves of working with that orchestra <clears throat> well, I think that they have such an enormous repertoire, um, mm. such a varied repertoire, don't they? Yes, they um, do. Uh, that um, it, it, it really appealed to me because uh, I've never been much of a specialist, to be honest with you. I, I like the broadest spectrum of music and I love working one day in one style and another day in another. It's just you know, my butterfly character, I suppose. But um, th that is so much a feature of their work and something that they relish as players. And they're proud of it, aren't they? They're really proud of that ability. Yes, they are. They never get into a rut. Mm. And I think that's what makes it exciting. You know, you can work a couple of weeks every day of the week and every day is completely different. Mm. And I think, you know, when I was playing and I would see you coming to Birmingham to conduct, that was something that came across um, that you had this love for all music. And, you know, I remember playing... Johann Strauss arias and waltzes with you, but also Daphnis and Chloe Suites by Ravel, and and you know you turn your hand to anything. Yeah. And I think working with the concert orchestra, that that's something you need to be able to do because if you do a Friday night is music night, you you're going to have something light and frothy, and then something possibly a little bit more sort of classic repertoire or deeper. Yeah, and, and as I say, I, I used to I used to love that. I mean, Friday night is a great program. Um, and we, we used to travel all over the UK doing it, you know, in, in back in my time at the orchestra, the, uh, the touring was, in, was, was wonderful. Uh, we would do a Friday night and uh, a Saturday night concert 
in mm. whatever town we'd gone to. Wonderful. Yeah, lovely people. Guesting, uh, a part of part of the job we all do, guest conducting. Um, other than the travel, which most people didn't seem to like, did you enjoy the meeting in the orchestra and finding out what they were like? Is it something you still enjoy doing or do you do less now? Um, what was guesting like for you? Yeah, guesting is, 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 is wonderful because it's, again, absolutely never boring. Um, no, because no. Every, <laughs> but in a way, it, it's very interesting if you also have a, a resident position and do a lot with one orchestra because in the end, the situations you're dealing with are all the same. They're just looked at, if you like, from a, from a different perspective. Yeah. And so, so whilst every orchestra has its own personality and its own way of working and its own pace of working and so on, uh, in essence, it all comes down to the same situation. And so I think that, yes, it is exciting to guest. You learn a lot yes. from, from, from seeing things from a different perspective, a different point of view. Mm. I love it. Yeah, it's it's a very very enjoyable part of what we do. Um, I do call it the hamster wheel of conducting on this podcast because it can feel like you're on a wheel that you can't get off if you've got a lot of one week after another after another. But there's a reason for calling it that is hamsters seem to like getting on the wheel. So, <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. so that, that's yeah. I, it, I think it fits. I tell you, the the the. the the, the thing I found that working in opera and ballet, it's, it's wonderful to be on tour because opera companies and ballet companies are such large animals, mm. they move around so much slower. Yes. So whereas in the, in the symphony context, we can be one night in one place and next night off to another place, you never really feel where you are. You might as well be anywhere. Yeah. Um, you never have time. But with, with an opera company or a ballet company, you'll be there for a fortnight, um, probably, a week of preparation with the orchestra and then the company catch up with you and because uh, of course in ballet we we seldom take our own orchestra you know ah, okay. um, yeah in opera companies of course you do yeah. but even so in opera companies you'll be in the town for a couple of weeks won't you? and you have time to get used to the climate and the restaurants and so forth <laughs> oh well I'll, I'll maybe find out about restaurants at the end of the uh, the end of the 10 questions we'll see <laughs> um <laughs> okay do you teach, Barry? I know I asked you this the last last time we spoke. I can't remember. Do Do you teach? Well, I I don't teach regularly, mm. but if somebody um, gets in touch with me, which they frequently do, of course, from the ballet perspective, because as I hinted earlier, um, it's it's very difficult to find out um, how to go about it if if you if you've never done any ballet. Yeah. Um, so I'm very happy to. Uh, to give advice and, and to talk to people about ballet work and, and conducting in general. Yeah. But uh, it's, it's not something I do every, every, or I, what I'm trying to say is I don't have a teaching position. A, yeah, a class. Yeah. 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 It's, I, I think it's a, what a lot of conductors do. I, I have, you know, individual pupils who I see on a infrequent basis and, and sometimes over a, a video session and we can talk through the videos that they've taken and, and point out some things here and there and just generally chat. Yeah, isn't it wonderful? It is, you, yeah. You, you, learn, you learn just as much yourself as, as you hope they're learning from you. Well, <laughs> the amount of times I've said to any student of mine, you know, do as I say and not as I do. Um, yes. <laughs> yeah, don't go hunting for videos of me online and, and, and then email me and say, but you just did that. Oh, yeah, well, I know I did. <laughs> yeah, yes. um, I've asked every conductor this question, Barry, um, which is, when you come to learn a new score, do you have a system for learning it, a way of learning? Um, as we've heard, you're a, a great keyboard player. Do you sit at the piano and learn it, or do you just sit down and learn it in your head? Are you a writer of things in your score? Do you use colours or just pencil or nothing? Uh, how do you go about it? Well, that was the thing that changed when I was a young conductor, because I was very influenced by Sir Adrian and Vernon Hanley, mm. who were... Uh, dead against marking the score. Their scores were absolutely crystal clear and clean. Um, and as I got busier and busier, so I decided, I realized that I was gonna to have to mark scores because otherwise my, my brain wouldn't, wouldn't retain all the stuff that I needed to have in front of me. So um, I do mark scores, but what I've tried to do, you know, is, is is not get you know when you've got a full score of a, of a new piece 
Mm. It's very easy to get bogged down on the first page. Yeah, yes, very true. And yeah. and I try to skip through the score very quickly. It's rather like you know when you when you drive somewhere that you've never been before and you you arrive at some spectacular view mm. and you get out of the car and have a look. Your eye goes around the whole spectrum of the of the view in front of you, mm. and it's only later that you pick out the odd church spire or uh, the old tractor ploughing a field, mm. what, whatever the details are. And I think there's a jolly good way of, of approaching a new score, you know, is to flick through it quickly to try and find out the shape, where the pinnacles are, where the, where the valleys are and where the hills are and so on, and the length of each section. Mm. And then when you've got that overall shape clear, then you can start filling in the details. And uh, the, the more you work away at a score, of course, the more detail you see. Um, I hope you don't mind. I'm going to steal that. That's a one. That's a brilliant metaphor. Um, I think that that sums it up. I mean, it's almost the same as I've you know, during lockdown watched an awful lot of uh, weird and wonderful television, and it seems to be a way that a lot of artists say about starting a picture is don't you know don't just stare at the blank canvas, which can be page one. Get some paint down, start p picking out the contours and the major lines, and then go at the details later. And it, yeah, it sounds. It's wonderful. I should be stealing it, Barry. I hope you don't mind. <laughs> no, I'd be not really thrilled. That's great. Barry, it is ten questions time. And so, numbers one and two together. What sound or noise do you love and what sound or noise do you hate? I think it was when I was on tour in Australia, I was in Adelaide and I had never met Ed Cowie before, but he was lecturing at Adelaide University at that same time. Mm. And we met up and we had lunch together. And after lunch, he said, you know that there's a wonderful rainforest up in the hills behind Adelaide, let's oh. go for a walk. And I said, well, that'd be a wonderful idea. I should love that. What I didn't know until we got into the rainforest is that he is a wonderful expert on birdsong. Oh. I mean, not only does he, and of course in Australia, the birdsong is, is, is very vivid and, and, and wonderfully tuneful. Mm. And uh, not only did he know all of the names of the birds that we were listening to, but he could also whistle and sing oh. their, the bird songs. Um, and so I learned an enormous amount from him and really got my enthusiasm from, from about birdsong from him. Uh, forever grateful for that. And many other things too, his wonderful music. But mm. um, no, it was a brilliant ex experience. Uh, and the sound that you hate? Oh, it has to be background music. Mm. Whatever it is, just having something playing in the background, I it drives me mad. Doesn't whether I don't mind whether I'm in a supermarket, uh, but the worst for me is to have it in a restaurant oh. because frequently it's. I mean, you're either on your own, and in which case I I would rather be with my own thoughts and not have them disturbed by hearing somebody else's performance or a, a piece of music that I don't like or do like really mm. um but the word but if you're in a restaurant with with with, with some friends and you want to have conversation gosh it's impossible isn't it yeah it is it is I mean there's two things that you bring up there first of all uh eating on your own when you're a conductor um yes I, I, you know I've, I've learned to take a book with me or a crossword book or something um so that you don't you know end up staring at the walls and looking like billy no mates as they call you um yes. and, and the second thing uh, is a story i'll tell i'm not sure whether i've told it on the podcast before about eating in a local restaurant in birmingham uh it was an austrian restaurant so there was a lot of new year's day music being played as we mm. went in and then we sat down at the meal and after 20 minutes my wife looked to me and said go on, what's the problem? And I said, um, this is now the seventh time through the Thunder and Lightning Polka, one after another. It's driving oh, me no. insane. And the CD yeah. obviously got on repeat or whatever. Somebody pressed a button somewhere. And I had to call the waitress over and said, please, can you do something with the music? And she said, well, what's the problem with it? And 
nobody else had batted an eyelid about it. But yeah, I had to get I had to get it to, to I said take the repeat off, change the CD, do anything. I don't want to hear the thunder and lightning polka again. <laughs> it <laughs> well, drives you insane, doesn't it? It just drives it, you mad. It really does. Hmm. I had a, a story to to share with you about that because I was in a restaurant on my own actually on one occasion, and. Uh, the music was unbelievably loud and tiresome. Mm. Um, and so I asked the waitress if she would either preferably turn it off or at least turn it down. Mm. And she was, she was a little bit upset that I brought that request. And um, she said, well, no, I don't want to do that because after all, there are, the, are the seven other people dining in this restaurant. And they all like the music. <laughs> so I said, well, are you really sure about that? Can I just go around and ask everybody? <laughs> and she looked extremely disapproving, but I'd already got up and started to do it. And all seven people, seven groups of people, yeah. all said to me, oh, please get it switched off. <laughs> oh, brilliant. Oh, I wish I, I wish I had the guts to do that, Barry. Hats <laughs> off to you. That's brilliant. <laughs> well, I probably had a couple of glasses of wine already, so I was a little bit less inhibited than I might have been. But anyway, it, was, uh, it worked well. If you had 24 hours free, what would you spend it doing? You know, what I find the most relaxing thing is to go on a boat ride. Oh, lovely, yeah. You know, it doesn't really matter if, if it's across Sydney Harbour in Australia or, or if it's up a canal in this country. or it, It's just the most, I find, the most relaxing thing to do. And if you're lucky enough to have a, a boat that you can stay overnight and then float back, that's even better. No, I, I, I think being on the water is, is, is the most wonderful way of relaxing. Who would be a favourite conductor of yesteryear? Well, I'm sure you've had similar uh, answers from people. Uh, Carlos Kleiber has to me top of my list. I was lucky enough that he did come to Covent Garden several times whilst I was there. And um, the number of conductors who used to come and attend his rehearsals was quite staggering. <laughs> um, what a talent. Mm. A wonderful technique, and actually, he he, he from a similar school to Sir Adrian, in fact. Yes, that's true. Um, yeah, yeah. But a lot more relaxed and a lot more um, present day, shall we say? Mm. Um, but I think, uh, apart from the the way he conducted and the way he he spoke to orchestras and so on, which was wonderful, I just love his music making. He always seems to get absolutely to the point for me. I've I've never heard anything. Other, that I've disapproved of. Mm. Well, I'm jealous. Um, if I'd been around, I'd have been one of those conductors as well, watching his rehearsals. Uh, he was my choice as well. Um, ah, there we are. Yeah. And who would be a favourite current conductor? I think of the people that I most admire. It's, it's those people who've held positions and really influenced the way that orchestras or opera houses work and, and play. I mean, I'm, I'm thinking of Tony Papano, mm. the opera house. What a wonderful time it's been with him. Yes, yeah. Um, Mark Elder up at the Halle. Yeah, 20 years. Though, yeah, yeah. It's a 20 now, isn't it? Yeah. Yes. And if I remember rightly, I don't think the orchestra was in a tremendously healthy position when he took it on. I think that they'd had some problems. And... Uh, so I, I think we owe him a great deal that he's kept that tradition really well and, and yeah. looked after it. And then, of course, um, Simon Rattle has to be uh, one of the people I admire most because of the incredible work he did in Birmingham and then in, in Berlin. Fantastic musician. What is the hardest work you have ever conducted? Well, do you know, I was reminded of this when I was in... Australia quite recently because way way back I worked in Ulster mm -hmm. with a producer called Paul Kildea and while I was in Australia I went to a Musica Viva concert and it turns out that Paul is now the director of Musica Viva which is a music appreciation society which covers the whole of Australia oh, right. and he he was producing for me way way back in Ulster when we did the Coriolano Piano Concerto with Barry Douglas. Mm. It's a very long piece, and Barry was absolutely brilliant soloist, but I had never done the piece before, and by gosh, it's difficult. <laughs> I mean, 
it, you, you, can't, you can't for a mini second let off your concentration. Um, and yeah, I, I, I've only ever done it that once. And I would be ne very nervous if I ha had to stand up and do that again. I, I think it came off quite well. Paul was <laughs> kind enough to say that, that, um, that he thought the performance went very well. But uh, gosh. It's hard enough doing a tough piece without a soloist. Um, yeah. I suppose in that situation, you're just really bloody thankful you've got somebody like Barry Douglas there who's on top of it, that you're not having to coax a soloist through a piece that's already really hard. Yes, I mean, uh, with, with, in some situations, it could have been a nightmare, but Barry was fantastic. When travelling abroad to conduct, what item could you not leave home without? I don't think it matters what time of year it is or where you're going. The one thing that I have sometimes forgotten and now is top of my list is a swimming costume ah because you know when you've had a hard day's work rehearsals and perhaps the concert not that night you've got a free evening so you get back to your hotel at about six and frequently you're staying somewhere which has a nice swimming pool and i find that the most wonderful way to relax mm. before supper it's great what is the one thing you would change about being a conductor ah could I make it a little bit more general a question and saying, what thing would I most like to avoid in music? Of course, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I know that competitions in music have been in, in many ways a wonderful way of raising standards. Mm. But the one thing I, um, that worries me is that it tends to strengthen the idea that music is a bit like a, a painting or a sculpture that it's there and it's there for all time and I think that the, tr the trouble with a competition is that if we hear a piece on Monday uh, and we like it and we like the way it's played and we hear it again on Wednesday we might think that we'd prefer to hear it played in a different way <clears throat> and I think there are a lot of people who also who have won competitions who've suddenly been thrust into the limelight when they're not necessarily ready for it well, and, absolutely. and they're, they're, therefore, they're, they're and I, I mean, not just conductors, but I, uh, soloists as well. So I'm, I'm not sure. I, I can remember in my own experience having a wonderful time in Liverpool when Sir Charles Grove used to do his seminars there. And uh, I remember I, I was in it the last year he did it, actually. Mark Elder was one of the four conductors, mm. Anthony Beaumont. And James Judd, mm. uh, the four of us. And it was the last year he did it because the sponsors of this seminar said, well, in order for us to keep on giving money for you to do this, we want you to make it into a competition. <laughs> and <clears throat> Sir Charles was absolutely determined that it shouldn't be. And I think he was right, but unfortunately it meant that the whole thing stopped. But uh, I, I, yes, competitions worry me. Well, it's interesting that I've spoken to a couple of competition winners in previous episodes and uh, dear listeners on the podcast. Um, I do interviews in advance and there's one coming up with a competition winner. And they were all very wary of of the aftermath of, of winning the competition and were well aware that their careers were not suddenly, you know, they were they weren't set for life they they all tiptoed their way into the profession um and i think that's why their careers have, have been long lasting and will be long lasting but i know what you mean i think there are some people who win a competition and think that's it i've made it i am a conductor and you're yes. in your early 20s you're not a conductor you're just starting out you just happen to have been the best conductor that day in the eyes of a jury if it had been the exactly. following day you, they might not have won um so yeah i think they i I think they're dangerous and I think the right people need to win them and then have the right approach for it to be any good to anybody, really. Yes, absolutely. What profession other than your own would you like to attempt? Oh, I think it would have to be, I, I would love to be a cook. Hmm. Um, chef d'orchestre, chef de cuisine, it's very <laughs> similar, isn't it? It's sort of mixing things together and yes. Uh, the great thing about also about, about being a, a chef de cuisine is you can actually serve it up and see the pleasure on people's faces mm. and unfortunately we have our backs to the audience don't we yeah, that, time that is true <laughs> but we hope we're lucky enough to get a bit of applause at the end i suppose 
And whilst we're in the world of food, Barry, number 10, if the world were to end tonight, what would be your choice of final meal and drink? Ah, well, can I have two choices, please? Of course you can. Um, you can have as many as you like. It's the last meal you'll ever eat. <laughs> okay, well, if, it's in, if it was in the summer, yep. I would want to be as far south in Italy as possible and have a spaghetti vongole. Mm, lovely. Uh, but if it was in the winter, I would like to be in a fairly cold, remote part of France and have a, a cassoulet. Mm. Well, a duck cassoulet, yes. They're, they're both winning dishes. Um, a favourite drink to wash them down with? Wine in both cases, I suppose. A nice white with the vongole and the... Well, I might even go for a rosé, you know, because okay. I think one of the extraordinary things uh, that's been a feature of, of dining during my life was, I mean, when I was a kid at school, or rather at college, people didn't drink rosé. It was, it was not a, you know, it was the sort of thing your auntie did. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but now the rosé has become such a varied and wonderful wine. Um, yeah, I'm very fond of rosé. Uh, but of course, if it, if it was the Cazolet, then I would I would be in for a, a French red, probably coming from Cahors. I love those dark red wines, full of tannin. Mm. Well, it sounds wonderful. And Barry, it has been wonderful. I've really enjoyed our chat together. And I hope to see you very soon. Michael, it's been a great pleasure for me too. Thank you very much indeed. And uh, I just think it's great that you're doing this series of interviews. The Mic on the Podium was devised and produced by Michael Seal with music by Ben Dawson. Next time, I chat to a young Czech conductor who, before building a busy and successful guest conducting career, had been assistant conductor with the BBC Scottish Symphony Orchestra under both Thomas Dowsgaard and Donald Runnicles. Until then, bye bye. <laughs>